Hey everyone, welcome to Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance. I'm your host, Chris Case. It was long ago that most athletes in the grand scheme of training neglected the importance of nutrition, prioritizing instead time spent on the bike. But now, nutritional periodization and other methods of manipulation are rapidly rising in popularity. Many people strongly believe that significant performance gains are being left on the table if they neglect nutritional manipulation. Today, we sit down with one of the top sports nutrition experts to discuss the potential performance gains from modifying the amount of carbohydrate made available at any given time relative to training load. What are the benefits of low and high carbohydrate consumption and manipulation? What are the potential dangers? We'll explain four distinct approaches. First, we'll talk about the fasted workout, easily done by skipping breakfast. Second, we'll discuss two-a-day workouts to reduce muscle glycogen. Third, we'll consider low-carbohydrate diets. And finally, we'll dissect so-called train-high, sleep-low approaches in which an athlete will intentionally skip the recovery meal after a hard workout in order to ride the next morning under low-carbohydrate conditions. The leading expert I mentioned earlier, who returns to Fast Talk for a second time, is Dr. Oscar Eukendrup, known for his work with many elite athletes, in particular the cyclists of the Jumbo Visma World Tour team and the Dutch Olympic Federation. We'll also hear today from a host of other great coaches and researchers, including Dr. Brian Carson, Joe Friel, Jim Rutberg, and Sondra Scarley. Put that bag of popcorn down. Let's make it fast. Hey there, listeners. You can join the smartest online forum in cycling for free. We've opened our podcast forum to all members of Fast Talk Laboratories so you can discuss recent episodes, ask follow-up questions, and even chat with some of our episode guests. Join the conversation. Sign up now at fasttalklabs.com. Well, welcome back to Fast Talk, Dr. Eukendrup. It's been years since we've had you on the program it's a pleasure. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Today, we want to talk to you specifically about one of these periodization uh, strategies for nutrition. We get a lot of questions about this particular topic and nutrition generally. So we want to dive into this with you today. Could we maybe start with a broad overview of what nutritional periodization is? Yeah, I think it's really important to start there because um, I see the term used um, everywhere and it is it is indeed very popular. But then if you dive into like different articles that you read, you notice that people actually use it in many different ways. So defining what we are actually talking about is really important. So we, we made this the, um, the topic of a paper a few years ago and to, to actually define what we mean by nutritional periodization. And the bottom line of the conclusion of, of, the, uh, of the definition that we used was that when we talk about periodizing our nutrition, we are actually planning our nutrition. That is maybe one of the biggest changes. So instead of just eating or eating for recovery, or we're actually thinking a little bit further 
and it's what are, what are we going to eat sort of this week? What are we going to eat before that training session? So there's a lot of planning and that's, that's part of what periodization uh, means. So there's usually a longer term goal. So, and that you're trying to influence and improve. So that goal in the end, uh, it's always a performance goal, but it could be um, a, a shorter term goal that is like, let's try and improve fat metabolism, for example, and let's try to develop a strategy around that uh, in this particular training session where we're going to do this, 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 and this. Um, so that is nutritional periodization. You think ahead of time, not just what your training is going to look like, but also what your nutrition before, during, and after that training is going to look like. Uh, periodized nutrition uh, usually focuses on the muscle and adaptations in the muscle, but it could actually be much more than that. So we, we also wrote a paper about training the gut. So in that case, you're not training the muscle, but you're actually training the intestinal system to uh, tolerate drinks or carbohydrate drinks better uh, or to absorb more carbohydrate. So it's not just the muscle, uh, but it's also other organs such as the gut and the brain that we can train uh, through periodized nutrition. So it's, um, and then that's why also why it's not uh, surprising maybe that people get confused a little bit about what, what it actually uh, means, because it, it means it's a very generic term that is used for a lot of different techniques that we can use. What really caught my attention going back through the research is you wrote a review in, in 2017, Dr. Holly wrote a review that I think it was 2014, 2015, I don't have the date in front of me. But both of you said the same thing, which is basically that the progressive overload approach is no longer adequate, that we need to incorporate this nutritional periodization to get athletes to their best. And I think, and I would love to hear you, you talk about this, but I'm just going to start by saying, I think that's a somewhat recent change in training. And, and to give an example, I remember listening to a podcast with Floyd Landis where he was asked about his nutrition and his comment was, oh, we ate like crap. We all ate like, like crap. That's part of the reason we, we needed to dope. It seems like that has shifted, that now there is this understanding that nutrition makes a difference. Nutrition is important. That's going to raise our performance levels and we really need to address this. Yeah, I see this as well. It's definitely the the last sort of three, four, maybe five years that that you see athletes pay more and more attention to their nutrition in relation to their their training than just like it's all about training, which it it, it has been for many many years. I, I think where a lot of people still struggle is like, well, how do you do this? And uh, and I think uh, to be fair, a lot of scientists uh, also still struggle there. <laughs> To, uh, to sort of summarize the, uh, the findings of the literature and turn that into real, like easy to follow practical recommendations. So let's start with, in both of those reviews, you and Dr. Hawley basically stated the same thing in terms of what is the goal that we're trying to achieve here. Um, and when you're talking about training adaptations, you, you, you talked about it as gene expression, he talked about it as protein synthesis, but we're basically talking about the same thing. And this seems to be one of the key targets of this nutritional periodization. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that this is correct. And it's, it's like, if you look at it from a historical point of view, 
like if we go maybe back a hundred a hundred years ago, if you wanted to test the effects of training, for example, um, the tool you had for that was a stopwatch, where you would you would measure uh, performance before and then after a ten week training program, and if you were faster, then obviously the training had worked. So then we got tools like heart rate monitors, and we could actually see maybe already after two or three weeks that uh, our heart rates running at the same pace would be lower. Um, so we were doing these physiology measurements. Um, then <clears throat> sort of the techniques further improved and we were able to measure things in muscle, like through muscle biopsies, for example. Uh, that gave us ideas on substrates that were being used. Um, and then the techniques developed further and we started to look not just at muscle, but actually in, in cells and cellular processes and much later, um, we also were able to look at molecular processes and even like at, at DNA and everything. So we, and, and, I, and the more um, you look at that like tiny detail from, from cells to, to molecules, the faster the responses are. So we're with one, like a few minutes of exercise, you see changes at the molecular level that later are going to affect the cell, the organs, and the training adaptation, and ultimately performance. But in order to see the performance effects, you have to wait a long time. You have to do, uh, you get, have to get a lot of these sort of signals in the muscle, right? And you have to accumulate these tiny little small effects over time to see a significant physiological and performance effect. So I think that's that's what happened over over time. Whether you talk about gene expression or whether you talk about protein synthesis, you're you're just talking about slightly different processes in that larger process to uh, training adaptation. And the more molecular, or the most, the smaller you look, the faster the changes are going to be, but also the more uncertain that that small change that you see actually translates into something that is relevant to performance, if that makes sense. Yep. So I'm looking at a diagram right now out of actually a 2018 review that, that is a good summary of what I saw in your research and Dr. Holly's and, and several of these studies that it seems the, the two pathways that get hit by the, these different um, approaches that we're about to talk about are the on the one hand, the AMPK the other hand, the P38MAPK. I'm getting in some big terms here. Mm. But so one that we love on the, the show. PGC1Alpha. Chris wants to make a cycling jersey that's just PGC1Alpha Yeah, alpha absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it all ultimately leads to a ramp up in PGC1Alpha, which leads to many of the adaptations we want to see in endurance for endurance athletes. But I guess the question, and we're going to dive deeper into this, is... Certainly, there's been evidence that we see a, a ramp up of this activity. Does it always lead to performance benefits? Yeah, that, and that's that's a really good question. That I, I think I, I answered it very briefly by saying, uh, like, if you measure those things really early on, it doesn't always mean that you also get the uh, the performance benefits. But we also we don't really have many studies. So there's a lot of studies that look at the gene effects and because they, they are like relatively easy to measure and they're quick. But yeah, it doesn't 
doesn't mean that you're going to get a physiological adaptation doesn't even mean that you're going to get more protein which you need to get before you get a physiological adaptation and even if you get the physiological adaptation is that enough to get a performance benefit um and the problem with the performance studies is they're, they're really difficult to do. So I admire any researcher who does those sorts of studies because you need to control all of the training of uh, individuals. You need to control their diet. You need to control whatever else they do uh, during the day, at least to some uh, degree. And you need to do this for a very long time because you're not going to get... Uh, measurable training effects in uh, in two or three weeks so you need to do long-term studies and control everything in the life of these individuals so they are incredibly difficult studies to do so it is also not surprising therefore that we don't have many of those studies so what's easy to do is uh, is do these short-term studies and then sort of extrapolate right and that is what you see a lot in the literature and i think sometimes we uh, <laughs> there's a lot of hopeful extrapolation going on. So we, we see small changes and yeah, maybe that could be beneficial, but yeah, it's, it's really difficult to say because it, it may just not be. My master's was a dual degree in nutrition and, and um, exercise bioenergetics. And when I was over in the nutrition department, I would listen to the nutrition students complain about how hard it is to get subjects to stick to the diet. And in the exercise physiology department, I would listen to people complain about how hard it was to get athletes to, or, or people to um, do the exercises, and you'd have to get them into the lab and exercise in front of you to make sure they performed it. So the idea of taking those two issues and bringing them both into a single study and saying, let's do it over a long term, just sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is a nightmare. And therefore, usually they get truncated a little bit. So um, one, one example was, so there is actually a study that John Hawley um, and I started at the, at the same time. And the idea was to do half of the subjects uh, at the University of Birmingham in the UK and half of the subjects in, uh, in Australia. So I would do some of them, he would do some of them, and then we put all that data together. Um, and turn it into a publication. Now, for various reasons, um, these these studies never got combined. But we we actually there are two studies in the literature that are performed with exactly the same protocol. Um, and actually, if you look it up, the findings are also identical. So same protocol, same times of uh, types of subjects. And in that study, uh, we did do some of the short term. Uh, measurements we also looked at sort of the the real like the the effects on fat metabolism for example and then we also measured performance um now we 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 had the same results in those two studies in that we did see like the acute changes and they they were very clear we did see changes in fat metabolism but we didn't, because the study, probably because the study was only three weeks, we didn't see changes in performance. But three weeks uh, was really like the maximum that we could do to control everything that we controlled in those studies. So three weeks is yeah, a short time to see any sort of. It's very again. short time. Yeah, yeah. And anyone, know, any athlete knows that that it's hard to get any real meaningful improvements if you're already trained in three weeks. Mm. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. Talk about 
the the carbohydrates here the this this idea that they're a double-edged sword um you need them but they might quote unquote hurt training in some ways dr yukandrup would you like to take us away into the world of carbohydrates for a for a moment <laughs> yeah well you you need them in certain situations i think um so and those situations are when the intensity is really high when performance is really important i think in the vast majority of uh, sports and also endurance events, uh, carbohydrate is is pretty essential. But on the other hand, if you're training and your goal is not to perform at your best, because that's not the goal of every training session, of course, um, then they're not so essential. Um, so I, I, I see them as, yes, they can support certain types of training, but... Um, I wouldn't see them as essential for all training. They are essential for performance for sure. So we've actually had Dr. Holly on the show where he talked about that research he did was about 2015, 2016, showing that um, when athletes ate a a high fat, um, I don't think it was a keto diet, but it was a high fat, very low carbohydrate diet they really struggled at high intensities because you actually saw a, a breakdown of, uh, of glycolysis. Yeah. And this is the, <clears throat> this is the tricky thing. So you, if, if you, it, it works both ways. So if, if you have a diet that is very high in carbohydrate, you become very good at using carbohydrate. Uh, on the other hand, if you have a diet that is very high in fat and very low in carbohydrate, you become very good at using that as a fuel. But, the downside is that with the high carbohydrate diet, if you do that all the time, you become like really poor at burning fat as a fuel. Um, if you're on a high fat diet all the time, uh, you become really poor at uh, using carbohydrate as a fuel. Um, and you, you can you can also measure why that is the case. Like a really nice study by uh, it was John Hawley and Trent Stellingworth, I think, who did the uh, the study that showed that pyruvate dehydrogenase is downregulated significantly when you're on a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, and that is the key enzyme in carbohydrate metabolism. So if you downregulate that, then even when you want to, you just cannot use the carbohydrate. But the the other the other um, way around it also works. So if you're always uh, eating a high carbohydrate diet and always yeah make make sure that you're you have carbohydrate during your training then you will become pretty poor at using fat as a fuel and you become very dependent on carbohydrate i'm really glad you brought that up because you you think back so the there's that whole glycogen loading um belief that's been part of sports for a long time I mean, that came out of the 1960s when they started doing muscle biopsies and I think back to the the research that even Dr. Sherman in the 1980s, who showed that yes, you do this carb loading, you can have you can go into a race with higher glycogen stores, but exactly like you say, you become more reliant on that for fuel. And he even demonstrated that that could hurt performance. I'm not convinced that they would hurt performance, but um, but definitely you are more dependent on carbohydrate, and therefore you use your stores faster. So you may have larger stores, but you use them faster. So in the end, maybe the benefits are not as great as uh, as, as predicted. 
Well, that's what they were showing was that certainly in studies uh, where they were looking to time to exhaustion, uh, the, the people with the higher stock glycogen were actually reaching exhaustion sooner because they were so reliant on carbohydrates, they were burning through it faster. Yeah, so it, it probably just stresses the importance of not just training one metabolic system, but making sure that all of it is trained, right? We, we've talked about benefits of carbohydrates, some of that being um, it, it allows you obviously to perform better at, at high intensity moments in races. Uh, certainly, there's been a lot of studies, including yours, that show that um, if, if you're doing hard training, um, you can perform the training better with, with adequate carbohydrate stores. Are there other benefits to manipulating carbohydrates towards uh, making sure you're consuming enough or more than enough? Yeah, um, I, I think there's one really important benefit, and that, that relates to carbohydrate intake during uh, training um, because I think most people probably everyone agrees that some form of carbohydrate intake during your racing during competition is important and it will help performance and I mean there's so many studies that uh, that show that so so everyone has a strategy to take on board carbohydrates during their events uh, now if you haven't practiced that then and you're trying to take carbohydrate with pretty high intakes and we've we've suggested and also shown in some studies that actually higher intakes will be beneficial so the more you can push that carbohydrate intake the more you can expect a positive effect unless you cause gi problems unless you cannot actually use that carbohydrate so the uh, the other benefit of taking carbohydrate intake uh, taking carbohydrate during the training is that you adapt the gut and you adapt the intestines to absorb more carbohydrate, deliver more carbohydrate to the muscle, and that will help your performance. When we had you on the show before, that's exactly what you were talking about, was training the gut so that you can handle a greater carbohydrate intake during events. Yeah, and for those out there listening that want to refer back to that episode, it's episode 83, Training the Gut with Oscar Eukendrup. And of course, my response is if you eat Swedish fish, you don't have to train your gut at all. Yeah. Swedish fish will never do you wrong. <laughs> never do you wrong. They'll just <laughs> swim around in there and it's like a massage to the gut. Nothing wrong could ever happen. Sorry, I have a bit of a Swedish fish obsession. <laughs> do you know what Swedish fish are, Dr. Yukendrup? I know from that episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. Did we bring Good it up memory. in that episode? Too? Good memory. I'm sure yeah, we, we did. did. I'm we sure did. we did. I think yeah. we have uh, we have used up all of our credits for Swedish fish jokes. I, th yes. I think we have to stop those now. Maybe on our jersey it should say PGC1 Alpha and then and the Swedish, Swedish fish, fish logo on there too. People ask us, we, they sponsor us. I'm like, well, we've sort never of. talked to them, but we've kept them. <laughs> we sponsor them. Yeah, we've kept the business alive by buying their product. Let's put it that way. Okay, so the last question I have is there's some belief that making sure you're getting adequate carbohydrates, even during training, aids recovery and also helps immune function. What's your feeling about that? I think it is important for like you, what, what you do see is like recovery is poorer if you don't have the, uh, the carbohydrate, which is fine if you uh, if you're still able to balance recovery and uh, training in like a, on a weekly basis 
Um, but if you put too much of the sort of low carb training into your into your plan, um, it it can become really hard to uh, to do the high intensity training because you're just too tired to uh, to do it. Um, so that's one reason to make sure that you at least balance the, the the two types of training, the low carb and the high carb training. You you balance them uh, really well. Um, there is also some evidence that uh, that yeah, low low carbohydrate intake will cause more disturbances in immune function. Now I have to say that a lot of those studies look at very isolated aspects of immune function. And there are very few. It's a little bit like the like the acute measurements that you can do in in sort of signaling molecules and uh, and genes, uh, and you can see changes early on, but it doesn't necessarily translate into training effects. The same with the immune system. You can measure like changes in immune markers. It doesn't necessarily mean that your immune system is really compromised and that you will get ill. Right. So it's the same sort of a, a analogy, but I would agree that the risk of becoming ill is, uh, is, is a little bit greater. So let's flip this around. We said carbohydrates are a double-edged sword. So what's the issue with trying to consume a ton of carbohydrates uh, in training? Well, the only, I think the only issue that I can, I can see is that you don't get some of the benefits in, like, for example, developing your fat metabolism. So some of the signaling molecules that would that are necessary to improve your fat metabolism, they are blunted if you uh, if you eat a lot of carbohydrates all of the time. Um, so that would be the the downside because if those signaling molecules are reduced, you're not going to get the same levels of gene expression. You're not going to get the protein synthesis rates that uh, that you would get and. After several weeks of uh, doing this, you wouldn't get the training adaptations that you would expect. So that would be, I think, the downside of taking carbohydrates like all of the time. Right. So going back to the, we, we gave the very brief, brief overview of, of the the signaling molecules, and the one that seems to really be blunted by high carbohydrate consumption is that AMPK. Yes, that's that's also one of the key. Uh, the key markers for sure. Um, you can also turn it around because the um, like AMPK, AMPK is is part of a glycogen uh, molecule, and if you break down glycogen, then this AMPK becomes uh, available. Uh, and if you have the glycogen stored, then the AMPK is not uh, available. So the, it, if if you glycogen deplete you can get actually get higher levels of uh, AMPK and that should really like drive the training adaptation. We asked Sandra Scarley, a former elite speed skater and now sports scientist at the Norwegian Olympic Committee, if he uses fasted training techniques with his athletes. No, actually, uh, we haven't done that. Uh, I've read some uh, studies and articles about it uh, showing some uh, potential positive stuff. But then I think um, as for an elite athlete, then you don't look so much on what can I gain in this workout or this workout. You have to look at a big picture and see on how those workouts fits together this week, this month, this uh, even this year. 
and uh, sometimes you can do something that can be maybe good for uh, improving this workout but it's not necessarily what's big in the long term it's like having an epic high intensity workout where you really hit the wall you do something harder than you ever done you do higher volume you do um, you really crush yourself and you can feel really good about yourself afterwards but uh, in the long term maybe it was not the best thing to do because you have to look at the big picture so I've been uh, slightly afraid to do those kind of workouts with my athletes but then again I come from a sport with speed skating where we don't need to focus that much on weight these are athletes that it's it's not it's often 70 80 90 kilos guys so they're heavier than uh, the cyclists so so we don't focus too much on it it sounds like for the most part carbohydrate can be a good thing but there are times when we want to limit it um i think it's probably time we dove into that question a little bit how do you how are the different ways that you can manipulate your uh carbohydrate uh level to tap into some of the benefits you might see by training at a lower state well there are many different ways in which you can do this and studies have done it in different ways and i think also athletes now use it in in different ways the most common way that i know is that uh, people just go out without a breakfast in the in the morning so in a way that is a, a form of carbohydrate restriction that can result in like different training adaptations and uh, there are quite a few studies that also like show this that you can get at, at least some or more of these signaling molecules and a little bit more gene expression of proteins that are related to fat metabolism um, but all you've done if you do that is you have reduced your liver glycogen because overnight the brain uh, uses up some of the glycogen that is stored in the liver uh, overnight nothing will happen with muscle glycogen because if you've eaten well muscle glycogen stores will be full and they will yeah they will not change so you would start like if you do this before breakfast you would start with low liver glycogen but high muscle glycogen and that gives different effects on uh, on on certain genes if you if you want to manipulate muscle glycogen that is a little bit more complicated because when you manipulate that well it's, it's easy to do you you just uh, exercise really hard and then after that you have low muscle glycogen but you you can't immediately do in another session then that's the that's the problem so the uh, the way they they addressed this in uh, in research studies was uh, the very first study was a really nice one actually they they did uh, they trained uh, the left leg and the right leg differently the right leg would train twice in one day so the first time muscle glycogen was full at the start and the second time a little bit later in that day muscle glycogen was empty and then the left leg would train only once a day. So every day, the left leg would train once a day and the right leg would train twice a day, then have a day off. So the total training volume was the same. But what they saw is that the training adaptations uh, in terms of fat metabolism, 
they were uh, quite a bit greater in the uh, in the right leg that uh, that had trained twice per day and then had a day off and that was attributed to the uh, the the fact that half of the time that leg had trained with low muscle glycogen um, so when that study was published uh, we like i immediately commented and said well it's <laughs> it's it's a bit of an artificial study because what you've done is you've trained these two legs in exactly the same way and that wouldn't happen in reality in reality if your muscle glycogen is full you train harder and if it's empty you train less hard you don't do the same uh, exact same training um so then th this is when we started to look at sort of whole body exercises a whole body training uh, to uh, to do a study with a um, a training group and a control group where the one of the groups would train every day and the other group would train twice a day and then have a, a rest day. So um, and in those studies we maybe somewhat surprised at the time we we found pretty much the same thing and the only difference was that the initial study that looked at uh, right leg versus left leg had also found an effect on performance and we didn't see that effect on performance but we only looked at uh, three week duration of the of the training and nutrition i read a really interesting review that dived into that issue with some of this research of if you are in a glycogen depleted state versus a, a glycogen replete state you you are going to train differently and one of the things they theorized is basically any effective training is going to get you down to a certain threshold of, of glycogen depletion that's then going to activate many of these signaling pathways. And if you are in a, a replete state where so your glycogen is full, you're going to train harder, you're going to train longer, but ultimately end up in a similar place. Yeah, and exactly that is also where my mind is. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So your feeling about the two-a-days doesn't seem to have that much of a, a benefit when you, you factor that in. No, I think when you factor that in, the, the differences become really small and it's much more difficult to, uh, to measure. So I think if you want to see these effects, you have, to, like, you have to make these training sessions pretty extreme. So if you train low-fat, then uh, really train low-fat if you train low carb then like really like make make it extreme um but then the the challenge there is really to to bring in enough recovery time and this is the other factor of course because if you if you now have maybe a really effective training session that now requires twice the amount of recovery <laughs> um have you really like after a few weeks have you really gained much and because you've you've also spent a lot less time actually training. Yep. So, yeah, there's still still a lot of questions out there that are that are unanswered to translate some of these like theoretical findings that are quite clear to uh, to actually practical methods. One of the first studies that I actually read getting ready for this podcast was one on on a two a day approach uh, by some researchers who seemed to be supportive of it. So this is the, the title is No Superior Adaptations to Carbohydrate Periodization in Elite Endurance Athletes. So you know where this is going. Where they basically said, well, you just haven't studied it for long enough. So they actually did this. They had two groups of elite 
athletes, so as triathletes and cyclists, one group. So the, I believe their protocols were similar, but it was, as you said, one group was training every day. The other group was training every other day, but, but doing two-a-days. And they did this for four weeks, and they really expected that you're going to see much better gains in, in the two-a-day group. And at the end of that four weeks, both groups saw improvements, but it was exactly the same. Yeah, it's always difficult with these studies. If you, if you don't find an effect, it is always really difficult to conclude that there is no effect. They're, they're two quite different things, I think. Um, but it is well, what you can say is, I think, that the difference, obviously, were if they were there, they were fairly small and difficult to pick up. Yeah. Um, so that's, uh, I think that that's probably the, the, the best conclusion, but I don't think you can say from these sort of studies that, oh, there is no effect. Just hard to point out. Yeah. So before we get to the sleep low approach, um, I, I think there's one other that we need to talk about, which is the high fat, low carbohydrate diet. And so we can talk about it as keto or not keto, but basically eating a diet that's, that's uh, very low in carbohydrates. What has been seen in terms of that and, and performance? What is clear is that whatever diet you give to humans, they, they will adapt to it. Some diets you adapt very quickly. Some diets like a high fat diet, it takes a little bit longer to, uh, to really adapt to it. But ultimately you, you will adapt to it and you will be able to do similar types of things with a completely different fuel mix. That that's a fact. Now, if we if we then uh, look at like performance, then there are some things of physiology that do not change whether you're adapted or not. If intensity is really high, you need glycolysis. There, like that, that is just physiology. Whether you can adapt for as many years as you like, um, you're still if the intensity is high enough, you're still going to need glycolysis with high intensity exercise you're still going to need carbohydrate as the uh, as the main fuel um so and this is why i think a di any diet where that that is the one solution for all problems doesn't exist a high carbohydrate diet is not a solution to all problems uh, a high fat diet or a keto diet is not a solution to uh, to all problems um and i think if you want to uh, train your carbohydrate and your fat metabolism uh, because I think I, I read a lot about the keto diet and metabolic flexibility well you're actually making your body very inflexible uh, because your body is becomes really good at using fat really poor at using carbohydrate same thing that would happen if you if you always were on a high carb diet you become pretty inflexible we, we said earlier you become very dependent on carbohydrate so the, the only way to, to stay sort of metabolically flexible is to give different challenges to the body at different times. And when it comes to training, we find this very normal. We find it very normal that we don't train the same every day. And we, we break up the, the training as much as we can. We give different stimuli. And I think we should do the same with, uh, with nutrition. Not, uh, not every day the same. Some days high carb, some days low carb and if you really want to get to the uh, the effects that uh, that we are talking about here, I think you have to really push this to uh, to extremes. Sometimes, not every day, but sometimes. No, actually, really glad to hear you say that because you know, 
I agree. I don't think for performance, a, a keto type approach uh, in the long term is beneficial. But I, I also do think we we went a little too far with the you know endurance athletes should be getting every carbohydrate they can possibly find in their system, and you should be eating seven hundred grams per day. Um, I don't think that's necessarily <laughs> beneficial either. No, no, it's not. Of course, it's of of the two methods, it's probably the lower risk method. That that's that's for sure. Um, but I still don't think that there is one diet that is uh, that is suitable for all situations. We asked Dr. Brian Carson, a leading expert on the effects of exercising in a fasted state, if he could see any potential dangers with fasted training. No, I, I think um, Dr. Hawley's group of uh, some good publications there. And um, I think uh, James Morton, who's a, a practitioner at the Coalface, is involved in, in, in that research also, um, who's dealing with uh, elite cyclists on a, on a day-to-day basis. Um, so I wouldn't have any major concerns uh, about it. The evidence is strong and it, it makes sense in that the hard session will be completed in a properly fueled state. Um, so to maximize the, the intention of that particular session, to be able to exercise at the right intensity, at the right race speeds, and to be able to complete that session successfully. And then the recovery from that is maybe suboptimal from a, a carbohydrate perspective, as you outlined, perhaps, you know, there's some uh, protein and fats and maybe a, a low level of carbohydrate in the post-exercise meal conducted that evening. Uh, the athlete sleeps overnight, so sleeps low um, and comes into the exercise session the following morning low um, in a fasted condition, low carbohydrate um, overnight and, and and then exercises. But uh, the intensity, and, and I know this has been the case in those particular studies, the intensity is much lower. Um, it's probably below 60% VO2 max. Um, so you're not potentially... Um, exposing the athlete to any dangers associated with maybe being have low energy availability or low carbohydrate availability at that point in time and for that particular session and it would be important to recover optimally from that session so uh, imagine the post-exercise meal there would be high in carbohydrate but it it seems like a sensible strategy and, and has some good grounding in science I'm not sure if this is one of the extreme approaches you are mentioning there, uh, Dr. Yukindru, but let's get into the train high, sleep low approach. Could you please, first, let's just describe that, t- talk about what that actually entails. Yeah, I think even here, there are different uh, versions of this, but uh, typically you would have um, a normal day, you would uh not train until late in the in the evening then you would not have a meal after that you would go to bed you would sleep you would wake up in the morning and your breakfast would be very late you would first train the next morning so essentially what we've done here is you put the training stress the the day before you make sure that all these signaling molecules are elevated you make sure that there is no carbohydrate to blunt them and you make sure that these these elevated signaling uh, molecules actually can do their work for as long as possible by extending the next um, uh, making sure that the the breakfast follows after the uh, the next training so essentially this is 
an extreme way, I think, to uh, to maximize these uh, the signaling responses. And I, I think I should first say that this is not a method that I would use, uh, but it does prove the principle for me that um, if you make it extreme enough, you're going to get some like pretty significant changes in signaling and protein synthesis and in training adaptations. And those studies are the only ones that really consistently show that this sort of approach can improve performance. And maybe that is just because it's extreme enough to actually see these, these effects. Um, the reason that I wouldn't use it is, and this is personally or with my, with my athletes, is that it's, it's a, maybe a little bit too extreme for me. And I see that uh, the risk of really disturbing sleep for me is, uh, is, is pretty great. The risk of then needing so much recovery time uh, is, is another one. I'm not convinced how practical this method is, but it does really show to me that if you, if you make these challenges uh, or the changes in your um, carbohydrate intake, if you, if you really... Uh, make them extreme, you you are going to see some of these effects. Really glad to hear you say that because that was going to be the first question I had for you. I, I have certainly had a few times where I've exercised late, not as much intentionally just because of other factors, wasn't able to eat or could only eat very little, and I know I can't sleep that night. Yeah, it's a common observation also with athletes that for whatever reason have to train late. There's a, a lot of sports where... Like they, they have for various reasons, they have to train late and, and usually they struggle to uh, fall asleep. And I'm not sure if that's really beneficial to the overall uh, training response. Now, I know there's been some studies exploring those issues and looking at, well, what happens if you take a, a protein drink afterwards? So at least you get some food in your system, but you're still not um, consuming any carbohydrates. What's your feeling about that? Yeah, and I think that that's generally what studies have done because, like, given people absolutely nothing, uh, I don't think that would uh, that would really help. Or it, I think the quality of the next training session would be so low that it's uh, it becomes less meaningful. Um, so most studies have done some feeding, but just have avoided carbohydrate. Um, and yeah, I think it just depends a little bit on how much protein you give because protein also gives an insulin response uh, right. and may may also blunt some of these uh, effects. Um, but the most important factor is is to reduce to make sure that you don't get the uh, the carbohydrate. Um, I should make one one other point about these uh, this sort of sleep low approach because so I see that some people um, associate that with a low carb approach. But it's not really. So it's just like in those uh, in those studies, the carbohydrate intake is the same in both conditions. So whether they 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 train the normal way or whether they uh, they use this um, more extreme approach, um, but the timing of the carbohydrate intake is different. So if uh, where where the training is in the evening, the the carbohydrate intake would be front loaded in that uh, day. And if that training was performed in the in the afternoon, then they would have the meal after the uh, training. Okay. But the overall overall carbohydrate intake would be the same in two two conditions. The question I have for you, I mean, we we started by talking about nutritional periodization and, and the values of it. 
Um, we just talked about some of these carbohydrate manipulation strategies, and I didn't hear a resounding, this is amazing, why isn't everybody doing this? So really want to throw that back to you and say, are there approaches that you do feel is effective, or is this just a case of um, we still need to do research? As you pointed out, this research is very hard to do. Where do you stand on all of this? Yeah, so... I think, first of all, I would just, would like to say that I do think that there is merit, definitely merit in this idea. Um, I, um, but I also think that we, we don't know enough, we don't have enough research to really come up with a clear recommendation that will work for everyone. It is still a little bit sort of art at this, uh, this moment while we're figuring out the, the science. So we, we have enough science, I think, to say, like, this is, this is a direction that, uh, that will work. But how we get this to work uh, as effectively as possible, that, that is still a big question mark. And then the second point I want to make is that we, we talk about this now as there is one approach for everyone. And I know for certain that people, if you give them the same sort of train low approach, they respond very differently uh, in terms of how well they tolerate it, but also how much rec recovery time they, they need after it. Um, and yeah, whether they feel good by doing it or not. So I think rather than having one sort of approach for everyone, maybe this is uh, where we need to work much more on an individual level. And maybe there are people where we shouldn't consider this at all because it just, it just doesn't feel right for them and they just need too much recovery time. And this is certainly something that working with professional cyclists that, that I have seen, that there are riders that tolerate this sort of training really well. And it's almost like the more extreme you make it for them, the better they respond. And then there are other riders where this is the opposite uh, and they, they really cannot, they just cannot do it. And this is another interesting topic for research because what, what makes those riders different? And maybe that will also give us clues to like how to optimize these things, how to optimize it for different riders. I got to think that pro riders also are, you know, an entirely different category than the majority of amateur riders. There's significant differences there. And so the responses would, you would expect to be drastically different as well there. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, and, and also you have to, you have to question whether these sort of methods whether they are necessary for the vast majority of riders, right? This is, these, these methods are pretty sort of extreme um, and maybe a slightly less extreme approach is, uh, is, is already enough for most people. Um, but if, if we really want to um, like find sort of the, uh, the, the last little bits, then I think the, these, these are tools that we should use and, and explore. Jim Rubberg, co-author of numerous cycling books, including The Time Crutch Cyclist and Ride Inside, had these words of caution when we asked him about the benefits of carbohydrate manipulation. One of the books that I was a co-author of, the, the Time Crunch Cyclist, one of the things we were always concerned with was the um, training the fundamentals versus 
uh, training things that were more nuanced. And because people uh, who have very little training time, um, they have a huge capacity or usually have a huge capacity for improvement within the fundamentals. And if they focus in on some of the very nuanced components of nutrition or um, some other marginal gains type efforts, they're often foregoing the larger gains that they can get simply by training uh, with higher quality in, in every workout that they do. So I guess my concern with, um, with the nutrition, the carbohydrate availability uh, manipulation is, are they gonna, would they be better off doing a higher power, higher effort, more high quality uh, training session in that morning workout than trying to accomplish something that is essentially gonna be a uh, fat oxidation um, manipulation. So the, the person who has the greatest capacity to benefit from the fundamentals, I'd say train with as much carbohydrate or as, as as much uh, energy availability as you can have uh, during those periods when you get to train. And so what do you think is left to figure out in, in the research to help? As you said, it's, it's an individual thing. It's going to be very effective for some people and not effective for other people, but we still need to do the research to figure out, okay, for this type of person, here's a good approach. For this type of person, that's a bad approach. What, what do we still need to research? Yeah, so I, I think that uh, identifying, uh, I mean, this this would be really novel because there's nothing in the literature, as far as I know, about individual responses to to these these types of training or low carb training, for example. Um, so it would be really good to sort of characterize uh, people and see is there anything different in because I think you can easily distinguish people in people who respond well, people who don't. Um, but what is different about those people? Those are questions that I would love to get answers to. Um, I would also like to see like more studies along the lines of the one we did that was like a little bit short to really show these performance effects. So if we if people could do studies that that go like to seven, eight, nine, ten weeks even, and then I would love to see what what are the actual performance effects rather than just looking at signaling, uh, just looking at fat metabolism. What what does it actually translate into? Um, but as I said, those are super challenging uh, studies. And Chris also brought up a good point that uh, I saw in several of the studies of addressing elite versus amateur athletes. Um, and it, it seems like some of these strategies, you, you actually see, even though this is an extreme that you would generally say only try this with, with somebody who's really serious, it seems like the you, you saw less benefit in elite. And there were a couple explanations, one being um, that potentially these pathways, AMPK, PGC1 alpha, they've pretty much maximized the benefits from those. So ramping up the, those that gene expression isn't going to do much for them. Another explanation that I saw was when they, they did glycogen analysis in, in, in elite athletes doing some of these um, carbohydrate manipulation studies, it was actually harder to get their glycogen levels down, that their ability to... Um, actually create so gluconeogenesis their ability to create carbohydrates was so good they were actually keeping their glycogen levels 
pretty pretty good. What's what's your feeling on that? No, I exactly 100% agree, apart from maybe the techno, um, the terminology. And that this is some is maybe an interesting point to make because I come across this all the time. So we, we talk about sort of elite and then non-elite, but really what we should be talking about is trained versus less trained. Uh, because the when we when we talk about elite, what we mean is the, these are the people that train like 30 hours a week and uh, they... They are super well uh, conditioned, but I do know quite a few sort of, we, maybe we would class them as recreational or maybe competitive uh, athletes. They're certainly not elite because they, they don't have the power outputs and they don't, they're not at the same performance level, but they're still training 25 hours a week or th- maybe even 30 hours a week. Um, and I think that is the more important factor. Um, if, if we're talking about someone who well, may be very talented and actually be like really close to the elite level, but is only training 10 hours a week, I think those are the people that can benefit from like almost anything because they've never trained very much. And maybe like the smallest intervention can have a very large effect. But if you're already training 25 hours a week, it's really hard to find something that, that gives you another 2%. So it's uh, yeah. In terms of terminology, I would I would always like base it not so much on the performance level of athletes, but more on like how much they actually train, how much they've conditioned their body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also bring up if somebody's training twenty five hours a week and you're you're pulling nutritional strategies that can impact recovery, you're you're really playing with fire. Yeah. All right. Well, let's close out by um, discussing any other periodization strategies when it comes to nutrition that are out there. What's on the? Are there things being developed? Uh, do you see things that people are trying that might not even be in the literature yet that show some promise? Yeah, there are. I mean, there are a number of different uh, different ways. People people are trying to use supplements as well to to support this um, to support training adaptations longer term. Uh, there are some studies, for example, with longer-term bicarbonate uh, use, uh, fairly promising uh, studies, but I don't think it's uh, ready to uh, to roll out yet to the uh, to, to the masses. So I think interesting interesting ideas, uh, but nothing uh, that's yeah that I, I would I would start to use. Well, I guess the the question I, I I'd like to ask is. You know, of you talk about what you wouldn't do with your athletes. What what is it that you do with all these great athletes that you're working with, especially on the Yumbo Visma team, to get them where they're at? And I know they're they are very very well trained athletes, so this might not apply to our audience. But I'm just curious if you're willing to share. Hopefully, they're not proprietary or secretive in any way <laughs> and you can share no, that with no 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 i can i can definitely so i, I think the, the these approaches with train low they they are certainly being used and they are used in certain phases of the of the season so this is another thing that maybe we didn't talk about but um when you're trying to condition the body and when you can make the the biggest changes this this time of the year or around sort of the december january for a professional cyclist 
these are the times where they they basically go from their lowest back to where they where they should be. Uh, so the improvements are relatively large, and this is where these techniques can really can really help and support. So training without breakfast is uh, is, is a is a very common uh, method. Uh, training twice a day, uh, a little bit less common, but it does uh, it does happen as well. Um, but there is also a very individual approach where, like, we don't use all of these methods for all of the uh, for all of the riders. Uh, there's certainly some riders that, uh, yeah, that do really well. And over the years, we've we've learned who responds really well and who doesn't. So we individualize this approach very much. And so those are yeah definitely things that we uh, we do. For, for somebody out there listening that wants to try and find what might work for them, is it, is it come down to trying something, doing it for a long enough period of time and taking meticulous notes about how they respond? Is that what you would recommend for them or is there more to it than that? No, I think it is, it is that. And what, what I would recommend is uh, try, if, if you've never tried this, then um, Go go out on the uh, on a bike without without a breakfast, but don't don't go on a really easy ride, which is like what a lot of people do. Don't don't go on an easy ride because an easy ride you can tolerate anything. It's it's not it's not challenging enough. So you need like almost a, a threshold ride and do that in a fasted state before uh, before breakfast and. You'll come back the first time, and you'll be you'll be shattered. Even and maybe it was a short uh, <laughs> a short training session that didn't work so well. Um, if you repeat that one the week after, um, I almost guarantee that it will be better. Um, and if you do it, repeat it again a week later. Just do this once once a week. You you will see in just a few weeks' time how much you improve. Um, and this is, I'm, I'm sure it's not all physiological adaptations that are happening here, but um, it, it is a really like interesting thing, little little test that everyone can do. And I, I promise that you, you get some uh, very interesting results from it. Um, at the same time, what I would do is make one, one training session a week about the opposite and make sure that you take in what you would take in in a race like pretty high carbohydrate intake. We sometimes recommend 90 grams or even more uh, of carbohydrate per hour. Well, let's try that on uh, maybe the, the Saturday ride and make every Saturday ride about training high, training high carbohydrate. So those, those are two things that, uh, that I think people can try. When it comes to attempting carbohydrate manipulation, Take caution is the advice from renowned cycling coach Joe Friel. He cites differences in the evolution of digestive adaptation as one of the reasons people respond so differently when training in a low-carbohydrate or a high-carbohydrate state. It's kind of the sort of thing an athlete needs to get into gradually over time. It's not the sort of thing you introduce that the athlete does um, without having prepared for this in many ways, one way is simply to see what happens when we, when we do an easy workout or, or a short workout after such a, a long fast. Everybody's different when it comes to their, their way their, their body responds to uh, nutrition. If you're working with an athlete who's a American Indian descent, 
their way of dealing with their, their bodies operate differently than somebody who is from Northern Europe in terms of carbohydrates, simply because the person from Northern Europe has been, their ancestors can go, you can go back many, many generations of eating high carbohydrate diets. Consequently, they may have adapted to it very nicely. Whereas the American Indian, Arab, Aborigines, Western African, and so forth, folks of those uh, who are descended from those uh, places are much less likely to have been involved in a, in a high carbohydrate diet. So consequently, when you, when you, put, when you change the diet of a person, uh, you've got to be very careful with doing it because we're, we're not all, all going to react the same way. And then there are the fact that some people eat high carbohydrate diets and other people eat high fat diets just as their normal way of eating. And that's going to have an impact on this also. So it's a rather complex situation to, to make a decision like this, but the thing to do with it from a coach's perspective or an athlete's perspective is to be very cautious at first. You don't rush into something like this and, uh, you know, immediately go out and do a four-hour ride on an empty stomach having not had any intake since the night before and have nothing with you on that ride. You're just not going to do that. You need to move into this very gradually over a long period of time and begin to wean your body away from having carbohydrate intake uh, right before a workout, even during the workout. So it, it's, it's rather tricky, and I wouldn't suggest most people try it unless they uh, know about something about what they're, what they're getting into. I also like the fact that you brought up timing is really important. Certainly in January is when uh, I myself and, and with my athletes, I'll, I'll say experiment with some things. This is the time of year when you're out for a long ride and just noodling along. You can experiment a little bit with uh, with under consuming. I would never recommend this two weeks before a key race. Yeah, I guess that is another question that comes to my mind um, for those who are really sort of into the experimentation of of training and and all of that. And we've we have touched upon it here and there. Maybe it's a little bit amorphous and individualized. What can people expect? come race day if they've done this what does this mean for them if they've gone through this if they've tolerated it um if they see quote-unquote improvements in how they respond uh for what you've just described uh, an interval uh, threshold interval session uh in a fasted state or in a you know before breakfast what happens in a race what what are you what are the performance gains here that they might expect to see yeah, I think in in a race it's really difficult to probably notice any any difference because a race always feels hard, right? That's you you go as hard as you can. So the way it feels is always going to be very similar whatever you've done. What 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 changes is the speed which things happen. So the performance the performance changes the the way you feel not necessarily that much. Um with the training high and, and going in the other direction. Um, I think that's a little bit easier to answer because then, yeah, you will be able to tolerate more. Um, you will also have the confidence if you have done this in, in training many times, you'll have the confidence that you can tolerate more uh, carbohydrate and um, that, that will in the end be beneficial because you can fuel your body better. 
Well, we like to close out every episode of Fast Talk with our one-minute take-homes. We'll start with you, Dr. Yukandru. Uh, in a minute, if you can, what is the most important message here for people to take home? Yeah, I think the most important message is that uh, there is not one diet that fits all purposes. That's what I would like to start with. So n- neither high carb nor high fat, that's not a solution. I think the solution is in being or making your body metabolically flexible, which means sometimes high carb, sometimes low carb. And uh, I, I think there are definitely some opportunities by training low carb in different ways, making the training quite extreme in a similar way that training really hard uh, is going to give you more effect than uh, than training at a moderate uh, pace. Um, those would be the, ma- the main take-home messages, plus maybe the fact that um, uh, it, it, it is extremely individual and uh, we know very little about like what makes people so different. Trevor, what would you add? Really, my big take-home is I was very happy to hear you say, this stuff is interesting, but there is no miracle cure here. And as a matter of fact, a lot of these strategies you wouldn't use because uh, we've been asked about it, so I know we have listeners who are hearing about these things and wanting to experiment with it. And I get worried about somebody who has a family, has a job, getting on the trainer at 10 o'clock at night, destroying themselves and then going to sleep, getting up at 5 a.m. to do their their glycogen depleted ride and going, I'm going to have my best season ever. Well, it's no, you could just as easily be completely overtrained by February. I like that you say there there's potential here. There are things that we can do. I hope you agree that still the main message is focus on eating well, training right, eating healthy. These are the best things you can do. I couldn't agree more. Yep, that that's what I would close with as well. Like we we've spoken so many times on the show about it's not about one it's macronutrient, it's not about one type of diet, it's about that blend of a lot of things, but all in all eating really well, healthy, good foods is is first and foremost what's going to make you the best athlete. And then these other things are potential bonus for certain people but i would be you know take a prudent approach if it's not for you don't don't probably bother with it if if you're into experimentation probably takes baby steps don't just go full bore so that's what i would leave with well it's been a pleasure dr yukadrup thank you again for uh, coming on fast talk well thank you it was a pleasure thank you that was another episode of fast talk Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Oscar Eukendrew, Dr. Brian Carson, Joe Friel, Jim Rutberg, Sondra Scarley, Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.